I'm Amy Halpern-Laff. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Today we have an encore of our conversation with Linda Nathan. Enjoy. I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern-Laff. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Linda Nathan. Dr. Nathan is Executive Director of the Center for Artistry and Scholarship and Co-Director of the Perone Sizer Institute. She's an adjunct lecturer at Harvard Graduate School of Education and is the author of two books, The Hardest Questions Aren't on the Test and When Grit Isn't Enough. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I understand there are changes happening at the Center for Artistry and Scholarship and the Perone Sizer Institute. Can you tell us about the center and the institute and what the changes are? Yeah, I can. In fact, I just tweeted about it that uh, we're going to be joining Hale, which is actually in the suburbs, and we're moving our PSI, our leadership work, to really sort of uh, ground or, or be the foundational leadership work for Hale. Hale is known in the Boston area as a camp more than anything. They run summer camps for Boston kids, for special needs kids, but they've expanded in the last few years and they now run a semester school, which is called Intrepid. I love the name Intrepid. Um, I love what that connotes. And so the Perone Sizer Institute for Creative Leadership is going to join the professional learning and leading arm of Hale. And so the Center for Artistry and Scholarship I'm not, it's not, you know, it'll exist, but we won't be there because we're going to move to this other very exciting organization. And we had a two day retreat there. And we, my colleague Carmen Torres said, we are going to learn to speak bird, <laughs> which I love that idea because it's in the idea of being in nature. And we were talking about how critical it is for leaders today we talk so much about environmental justice, social justice, but where do we get to practice it? So we will actually have class in yurts, in um, cabins. We'll be able to take walks around a pond and in the woods and really think what does it mean to bring, because our focus is really on urban leadership. That's It's not all who we have, but mostly. So we're so excited about what this may bring for us. Why are the outdoors so central to your vision, Linda? You know, I don't know if before the pandemic, I, I was thinking about this this morning, thinking about talking with you, and I was thinking about how privileged I've been to have summers outdoors, to know how to cross-country ski. And I was thinking, when I started teaching in the late 70s, Carmen, the same Carmen I'm referring to, because we've been colleagues for over 40 years, Every season, we took our kids hiking, climbing, skiing, things that our students had had no exposure to. And if they ever acted badly, which of course they did, uh, we would tell them to listen to the trees because the trees would talk when the branches would rub and they'd be terrified. And we'd say, these were you know seventh and eighth graders, 12, 13, 14 year olds, and we'd say, they're going to come and get you in the night if you don't behave well. And, and, and really all my life, 
I have begun school as a school leader with kids outside. And all my life as a school leader, I've taken kids camping. At Fenway, we took 250 kids camping altogether. That was insane. So I, I like, I feel like I'm, my life is going full circle. I feel like the arts have been so central to my life in so many ways. And the outdoors has been really central. And I, I hadn't thought about the power of leadership training and outdoors until the pandemic. And so then this opportunity presented itself because in our leadership cohort this year, one of the folks is from Hale. So it's just all taken on this wonderful evolution. And I can't wait to learn, as Carmen says, to speak bird. <laughs> Linda, how do kids act when they're outside? Does being out in nature impact the way they relate to one another and to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a way in which, I mean, I can just think about building a bonfire you know, with 16 and 17 year olds and the power of that to end an evening making s'mores and kids hadn't even heard of that. They hadn't gone to away camps themselves. You know, they were city kids, but to do, to have those kinds of activities sort of equalizes the playing field, equalizes the power. I've written a story, not, to, not published yet about a student in my early years who was so difficult for me to reach I call him Jorge, and he challenged me on everything. He broke every pencil I gave him. But I had said those that, you know, get a perfect score on this math test are going to get invited into the lottery, and you're all going to go camping with me. And wouldn't you know it, Jorge won the lottery, and he was one of eight kids who I was taking camping, and I was just like, oh, he's going to be so bad there, and what if I have to send him back on a bus and blah, blah, blah he was in charge of cooking dinner and he didn't know how to start a fire and he couldn't, he didn't remember that he had to find dry twigs. But when I laid out some dry twigs for him and the fire blazed, he thought I was like some magician and our whole relationship from that point on switched. And he used to tell the other kids, you know, the Missy knows how to start fires. And I suddenly had, you know, this place of, of reverence for him. So there's both a way that kids see you differently because you're all kind of equal. And I had some skills that he didn't have, and maybe he had some skills that I didn't have. And it's a way I think the outdoors bring us into an equilibrium that we didn't know we had. And, and maybe we get to that equilibrium through an intense disequilibrium because, you know, we're uncomfortable because we don't know the place. And then some cool things happen. I don't know if that helps. It does. I think my next question may follow from that. You said that there's a need to talk about joy, wellness, and rigor all together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just have to first say, because I know Deborah Meyer has been on the show and I just got to see her. She hates the word rigor. And so she's always telling me to take it out of my vocabulary because for her rigor and rigor mortis go together. So she just always, you know, but I'll use the word to mean striving to do your best, striving for high standards. And joy, I don't think needs an explanation because it's part of our basic humanity. It's what 
you know, without joy, you don't have sorrow and, and you need it all to be a whole human being. And too often in our rigor mortis like schools, our tradition based schools, our schools that are very lockstep, our schools that are now known as sort of no excuses schools, those schools have really eliminated joy. And, you know, I've been in schools where the recess is done in a straight line, silent, hugs and bubbles, you get bubbles in your mouth so you can't speak and you hug yourself so you can't touch anybody. But with the arts, you find a range of emotions that I don't think anything else can get you to. Sports is wonderful because of its teamwork, its collaboration. It often has a lot of competition attached, which isn't bad. But the arts allow you to explore in ways that you didn't even know was possible. And I love that about the arts and therefore find deep joy. And if you will, deep rigor. You've written about grit not being enough. What did you mean and what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I was writing this book. I, I should say a little bit about how the book came to be about. I'd been a principal and I had worked in the Boston schools. I'd been a teacher and a principal for 38 years when I started writing that book. And I had founded Boston Arts Academy and I was stepping down as the head of the school. And I was doing some ancillary work for the school and the principal who was someone I deeply admired and, and had trained you know, I said, what can I do to help in this year where, where you're interim and, you know, you don't want me in the way, but what can I do? And she said, you know, I want you to interview the alums and see how they're doing. You know, we, we boast about our college going rate. I, I want to know how our kids are doing. So I started to interview and, and I interviewed over 90 kids. And the book emerged from those interviews because I, I found out that although we had a very high rate of going to college, our rate of finishing college was not as great. Now, it turns out it was about 68% of our kids finished college within four to six years. And I didn't think that was good enough for a school that auditioned. Turns out that's an extremely high rate, <laughs> higher than most schools would get, even um, some schools in very wealthy areas. So I was wrong about that, but I still didn't think it was good enough. And what I learned in the book, and, and, and I wrote sort of the book is divided into these chapters about these assumptions that, of course, we have in our, our country, the meritocracy being one of them. And this notion that if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you'll be fine. And it turns out that was patently wrong and false because race and racism play a role, institutionalized racism, sort of the systemic oppression that our kids experienced, the lack of funding was huge and on and on and on. So when I was writing this book, it was sort of at the heyday of the, you know, KIPP, no excuses movement, knowledge is power and, you know, knowledge is, yeah, knowledge is power. And, and this notion that so many of these no excuses outfits really embrace, just work hard 
and you'll be you'll be fine. And that just wasn't true because some of my best kids had worked really hard and their scholarships went away. The example I always like to give is this deep secret in the world of science where so many kids from wealthier backgrounds will take that hard science course in the summer, but my kids' scholarships didn't go into the summer, so they were stuck. So it was sort of one thing after another, that one impediment after another, one obstacle after another, and this absolutely insidious web of racism that caught my kids wherever they were, and grit had nothing to do with it because they were so gritty, but circumstances really were against them. And, and I wanted folks to understand, you know, I was writing this book as my own kids were applying and going to college. And it just was so clear that my kids with two college educated doctoral parents got so much support for any issue that they found in college registering for a class, not being able to pay the bill on time, whatever the issue was, they had support. And my own students, that wasn't the case. So, so the title is really meant to make the reader say, yeah, of course, you've got to be gritty, but that is not all it takes. And if we don't dismantle some of that systemic racism, some of now we're calling, we're naming the white supremacy now. When I was writing, it wasn't such a term, but... Um, that's what I meant. I, I don't know if that's clear. Yeah. In fact, you've said that white supremacy pervades our school systems. What do you mean by that? How does it manifest? You know, I think everything from the way our curriculum is and isn't defined from and by and with kids and families, you know, I think we still have a very Eurocentric curriculum in our schools. I think that the way we think about discipline. I think discipline is one of the most, you know, if you will, white supremacist institution, the way we think about if you do one thing wrong, you're out, the code of discipline. I think, you know, just what we're even experiencing now with Georgia saying, you can't teach critical race theory or you can't, you know, we, we in our schools, forget that we're there to teach kids in all of their complexity, in all of their colors, in all of their religions, in all of their experiences. And our curriculum has to be very, very open to asking questions, to learning the skills of listening and collaborating. And, and we don't do that because what we do is we give kids tests and they're high stakes tests because there's nothing wrong with tests, but we give kids tests that determine their fate. And we've decided that it's about the SATs that get you to college. And we've decided it's the narrowest eye of the needle that a kid has to get through. So if a kid has another way of showing their brilliance, their creative genius, their criticality is, I love the way Goldie Muhammad writes, we don't honor that. We have a very narrow curriculum based on assumptions from the 19th century. And you know, the thing that people say, if Rip Van Winkle woke up a hundred years after his sleep and went to a school, 
he'd fit right in because it looks just like the way it did when he went. And, and I think that's really, I had so hoped that the pandemic would burst open the seams. That's why I got so attracted to this notion of outdoors and the arts, although I'd always been attracted to the arts. But imagine what it would be if every kid to graduate from high school had to play a musical instrument or sing. Imagine how that might change our thinking about our humanity. Imagine if every kid had to collaboratively hang a show, a gallery show with their work, whether 3D or 2D. Imagine if every kid had to do a walkabout in nature. You know, imagine if it wasn't just about a math test or a reading test. Obviously, reading is essential, but imagine if what we were asking kids to do was really complex and inquiry-based. That's not the way school is. I've always said, imagine if kids had to pick a six-week project, and that's what they worked on for six weeks, whatever that might be. It had to follow their passions. It had to connect with adults. It had to create community. It had to be good for a community. You know, imagine that. that that's what we did at BAA at the Boston Arts Academy is kids really had to develop a senior project that both improved the lives of folks in whatever community they wanted to find and used their artistic and academic skills. And that was, as much of a graduation requirement as anything else. And, and that's powerful. Linda, I can just imagine if adults did that. I know, I know. So, yeah, when, when we started the Peron Sizer Institute for Creative Leadership, we developed our year-long capstone based on what we had developed with kids at Boston Arts Academy. So it's been fun because some of the alums have come to see the consultancies, the mid-year mid consultancies and the end-of-year capstones the presentations and they invariably say to me, Miss Nathan, I've seen this before. I think I did something like this and I'll laugh and say, yeah, we used the senior project, your senior project to build this. So yeah, imagine if, if adults, but if kids don't have those deep experiences, I think school is about, you know, school is not preparation for life. It is life. And so we have to treat it that way. Yeah. As you're describing the school, which sounds like an incredible school, what should teacher education look like? Yeah. To prepare teachers to create and work in the school. Yeah. So interestingly, at Boston Arts Academy, when I was leading it, all of our teachers, no matter their discipline, ballet, math, music, English, science, had to get a dual certification in reading and moderate disabilities. So I, I have some very firm ideas that while content is important, it is not sufficient. And if teachers don't all know how to teach reading as elementary teachers are trained to do, and they're not trained anymore as well as when I went through a certification program, I'm trained as a bilingual teacher, elementary and middle school. and I did a lot of coursework in reading, the science of reading, how to understand how to, how to teach reading. 
teachers must know how to do that, and they do not. They're content specialists, and that's not good enough. So all teachers, I think, in my world have to know how to teach reading, need to understand deeply what it means to have an inclusive classroom with kids who learn differently. So that's why I talk about moderate disabilities. And then I think teachers really do need, this is going to sound really funny, but all of our teachers at the Boston Arts Academy always developed the school schedule. And, and that was an arduous process that took a very long time, took months. But I used to say to our student teachers, if you go to a school and you're not involved with the process of creating the schedule, because the schedule, it stands for how you value people, time, money. And if that's not a teacher activity, if someone in an office, if a registrar is doing that for you or to you, then that is not a, a democratic school. So I think teachers, <laughs> all should understand something about you know the big picture how do you think like a principal because that's what a principal usually has to do is create a schedule and then i think teachers have to deeply be practiced in what vito perone and pat carini practiced the descriptive review of the child so that was a practice you know done in one particular school in vermont for little kids but we used it at Boston Arts Academy as a way to deeply understand what were the assets kids were bringing to us. So how did we understand kids writing? We all learned how to really deeply analyze kids' writings using protocols. And, and I think teachers need lots of experience using those kinds of protocols so that they can if I say a, a piece of writing is an A or a four out of a four point rubric, and one of you say it's a three and someone else says it's a two, well, why is that? Do we understand together what it is we're looking for and valuing? And that's work, you know, teachers need lots of time together to develop curriculum, to assess work together, and how you do that requires some skills in that, some practice. Let's dig a little deeper into that. I mean, how do you measure student success? Yeah. Well, so what I'm describing right now is if I had a piece of student work and there is a protocol, it's all through the National School Reform Faculty's protocols. Those are the ones I use and, you know, shout outs to Jean Thompson Grove and her colleagues for developing those. So there is one about collaborative work protocol, looking at work, you know, looking at student work together. And so teachers need to be familiar with those and need lots of opportunities to go through that. So that's how we begin to, if you will, tone, evaluate, assess together, what does good work look like? Because, you know, good work can look like lots of different things depending on an assignment. So that's something that I think should be really clear and really clear to kids. This is the standard. And of course, the standard would be taught. So the, you know, that's the, the idea of having very clear criteria. That's what Ted Sizer's work was all about. What was Grant Wiggins was all about that. Really, really showing first the criteria and then teaching from that. So 
what does good work look like? It depends. And, you know, we can have a standard. And in the schools that I've run, I do. We do. We've developed them together collaboratively. We've invited kids and families in so they too understand what those standards are. They're written up, they're published, they're accessible. The same with the Perone Sizer Institute, where we're working with emerging leaders, their written work, there's a standard for their work to be completed. There's exemplars that we share so folks understand what's an exemplary, what's good, what's adequate, and what's not good. So I think the question of what's good work depends on the product, depends on your goals. And so I don't know, there's never one standard, the standard has to evolve with the assignment. And one thing that I loved at the Arts Academy was in our first year, we were a new school, new teachers, new kids, everything was new. I think our standard wasn't high enough. And as we got better as teachers, the standard got higher and higher and higher and higher because our teaching got better and better and better. So now I think what's good work when I see the theater performances of kids in 2021 compared to 2000, I'm blown away because it's so professional. And that's because the theater teachers got a whole lot better because they had a whole lot more time to practice. So that could be troubling because that means then the standard isn't stagnant or finite, but I think we all should always be getting better. So good should always be getting more good. I think, I mean, I think that about my own writing, right? Like I think, hopefully I'm always getting better. I don't know, am I answering your question? Yes, in fact, I have a follow-up to that, which is when your students graduate and you talked about seeing what happened to them afterward. Yeah. But for you, what are some markers mm -hmm. of whether you've been successful, whether the school has been successful. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great one. Do you look for? Yeah, right. So the biggest was, did they understand that they had to access their professors? So this is college kids. Did they understand that? And, and we would hear, I, I sometimes have the chance to talk to professors or even college presidents about the kids. And they would say, dang, those Arts Academy kids, they know that, you know, when there's office hours, they're there, that you have to have a conversation, that you have a responsibility and a right to ask questions. So asking questions, that to me is so critical because what we wanted our kids to be able to do, and this was really the marker, was learn how to learn. So we used to, the, the mantra in the hallway, was get to class, learn to learn, learn to learn, learn to learn. Wait, we would say, you're late for class. It's time to learn to learn. It wasn't go learn. It was go learn how to learn. And I love that because I don't know very much, but I know how to learn. And so that's what we wanted for our kids. Did you know how to do research? Did you know how to ask for help? Do you know how to work together? The final assignment at the Arts Academy was a collaborative project with three other people in three different majors from your own. So one dancer, one theater, one music, one visual arts, that was very purposeful. Could you learn to work with other people? I think 
Yeah. So learning how to get along. I think that's a huge one. And I think today it's the marker of a kid from BAA from Boston Arts Academy is that they know, they know how to speak to social justice, to racial justice it was fascinating in my interviews with white kids talking about the racism that the white kids observed on their campuses. The black and brown kids, it didn't surprise me, but I was surprised to hear that the white kids had developed because of their high school education, a sensitivity to, they, they could name when they saw institutionalized racism. And, you know, many of them kept being very involved with, with issues of, social justice and, and racial justice. So I, I think that's also a marker of what success looks like is, can you speak truth to power as a young person? The whole senior grant idea was, can you take on an issue and figure out a way to do something about it? And so that to me is a marker of success. Like, are you a bystander or are you somebody that can take a leadership position to create change. And I think the other thing that I was always very proud of is that kids graduating from BAA didn't necessarily have the same scope and sequence that other kids had, but they knew about aesthetics and they knew so deeply about art that they could have conversations at very high levels. So I, I always felt that they were prepared well for college. And then the question, of course, was, was the college prepared well for them? And the answer that I found out in this research was no. And I was furious, furious at the ways the colleges really let my kids down. Could you go into that? Yeah, because there was all sorts of ways in which kids would be struggling. I gave the example of a science course and they couldn't get that science course in the summer, and yet their classmates were going to drop the course and take it in the summer, and there they were, stuck. And so if they got lower than a C, they'd lose their scholarship. And they got lower than a C and lost the scholarship. That infuriated me. And then the financial aids, uh, that story after story of a kid as a junior, you've had a certain advisor. Well, I'll say it more broadly. Colleges don't take advising seriously. And so... You know, if you're in a state college and you're dependent on financial aid and you miss one deadline, you're done. And there's no safety net for you. And so I saw that again and again and again. So I, I, I felt like if you take my kids, which you are doing because they're brilliant and beautiful, you have a responsibility to graduate them and you have a responsibility to help them access financial aid, just like we did when they were in high school. They don't have parents reminding them about the financial aid form. There's like this thing, if you get financial aid, you're supposed to know how to do all of that yourself. You need a freaking doctorate to know how to do those financial aid forms. So the, the most vulnerable, the most inexperienced are expected to do all of this themselves. And, and I, I put the blame on the colleges. I think they don't take seriously that advising. You might have an academic advisor who doesn't know diddly squat about financial aid, and that's the person you're talking to, 
but really you can't even register because you haven't gotten your, your loans haven't come in, your Pell, you know, it's like on and on and on and on. And, and I think if anything comes out of our current civil rights unrest, our current moment of racial reckoning, it's that colleges really need to redo themselves. Going back to the situation of the school itself before kids get to college, how can a principal in a school community support and sustain anti-racist, child-centered education in school districts that don't value what they're doing? So it's a tenured principal or is the principal gonna lose their job? I mean, this is a difficult issue because I guess whichever and both. I mean, you know, yeah. just that obviously your schools have been very different from the norm. Schools yeah. That Debbie Meyer started were very different from the yeah. norm. And I know, for example, with the schools in District 4 in New York City, there were frequently times that the superintendent or right. the school board was either just plain not interested or was actively hostile. Yeah. So what are survival skills? And of course, you'll have some principals who may not be tenured, or you may have principals where they may be tenured, but the district makes it clear that their school's never gonna get anything if they don't play right. by their, right. their rules of the game. So what are some of the- I mean, These are conversations, you know, I was very lucky in Boston. First of all, listeners may not know, but I'm white and I'm from a, a privileged background. So I have all of that white privilege is part of my DNA. And so, and many of my colleagues were leaders of color. And so there were often times where it was safer if I spoke than if one of my colleagues of color spoke because if I lost a job, I had a husband who was working, I wasn't the only breadwinner. If one of my colleagues in this instance lost a job, she was the only breadwinner. So we had lots of conversations as principals, as in Boston about sort of allied behavior and who speaks. And often it was like, you speak because if I speak, I might get fired. And that was true. Um, so I think I could take more risks than my colleagues of color. Um, you know, when I protested vociferously around about high stakes testing, and actually we didn't give the test the first year, um, I was threatened by my superintendent and I was written up and all of that, but I wasn't fired. But if a black person had done that, if a Latinx person, an Asian American, you know, might've been a different story in that era. So I think race always plays a role. And so the question you're asking, the broad question is, what do you do when you don't agree with district policies as a leader? And that is such a complicated question. Often the way to go is to enlist parents and kids and family members who can speak for you because you can't speak, especially if you are afraid of losing your job. So that's one strategy. Um, I think, and that's probably always my best advice, the other is, you know, sort of the John Lewis, good trouble, you know, how do you play the game 
and yet at the same time create the school you know that kids and families need. So even as a teacher, I had disgusting textbooks as an early teacher, social studies and math teacher, and I would always have them out and the kids would always have them on their desks because I never knew when a district person would come in. And I would always have on the board, you know, whatever chapter we were supposedly doing, but we weren't. And so I was always kind of nervous that they would ask the kid about the chapter they were in. And one time I did get caught and, and one of the district people said to Chico, so which chapter are you reading in this class? And he said, oh no, we're not reading the chapter. Miss Nathan just has us have them so that no one finds out. And there, you know, my, <laughs> my cover was blown, but that was a good district person. I didn't get into trouble, but you know, what are the ways in which we, we as leaders can protect our teachers so that they can do the work they need to do and they can become the anti-racist leaders they need to be. And they can, you know, it's usually about like the book that a teacher wants to teach and, you know, they get yelled at by a district person or even sometimes by a parent. You can't teach that book. That's a, that's, you know, blasphemy. We, I had that as a principal a lot. And so I, my job always was to protect my teachers as sort of at all costs. If I believed in my faculty, which I did, I had a stop sign at my door and it meant whatever the issues were stopped with me. And my job was to take care of them, not them. So another challenge that all progressive and anti-racist educators face is high stakes testing. Right. How do you prepare students to successfully take yeah. standardized tests while centering real learning rather than test prep? Yeah, so I was really clear about that with kids and families, and I would do something every year. So after the first year where we didn't take the test and there was a whole lot of trouble, I had a teacher come to me because money was associated with scores on the test. And she said, you're, you're doing a very racist thing because you're denying kids access. And so, you know, I disagree with what you're doing. And I really, she was right. I heard that. So what I did every year was we would come into the assembly hall and I would sort of draw a line, an imaginary line on the floor, and I would step over the line to the left side. And on the left side of the line, I would say over here, I work politically in all of my free time to dismantle high stakes testing because I don't believe that one test should determine your future. And that's what these tests are all about. They're about saying, if you get a four, you'll get money and you can go to a state college. Or they're about saying that, you know, you're smarter than someone else because you could take this kind of test. But I know all of you and I know you're smart in lots of ways. So that's what I do over here. And I invite you as parents and, and young people to join me. And here's a lot of literature to help you figure out if you want to go to any of those meetings with me or with each other. And then I would go over on the other side and all the faculty would be standing around the perimeter of the room. And I said, I want you to look at all of these amazing teachers and each and every one of them is going to make sure that you are prepared to do your absolute best on these tests. And each of every one of you will take them and each of every, and every one of you will do well. And again, it has nothing to do with how smart we think you are, but it is a hoop 
that you have to jump through in order to graduate from high school and go on to college. And that's the way I did it. I tried very hard not to use words like, because we did have these intensives, prep weeks, and sometimes we lapsed into that militaristic language and called it boot camp. I tried not to use that kind of language. I tried to be very deliberate that we have a Saturday crash course for MCAS. It's just about the test or for SATs, but it has nothing to do really with your curriculum. And, and then where it made sense, you know, we weren't rigid. There was some stuff in the math test that was good. And so we retooled some of our curriculum. So it included some of those concepts. Some of it, we had our kids take the engineering test. We had a very rich engineering curriculum. And so many kids graduated from the Arts Academy wanting to be engineers until the damn high stakes test came in engineering. And then that just made it not an interesting subject anymore. So sad, so sad. So we just, we've lost our balance. Because I, I don't think, I keep saying this, there's nothing wrong with testing. There's nothing wrong with assessing what kids can do and what kids know. That's fine. I really appreciate like the NAEP test, which is a national test and not every kid has to take it, but I, I appreciate those ideas of we'd like to compare. There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm opposed to are these tests where huge decisions about your life are being made. That I think is not a good use of our time. I, I mean, I know it's done around the world. So I think teachers judgment does count for something and, and we don't trust teachers. That's the trouble. So that's why we use these tests. I wouldn't now we use them as early as five years old. I wanted to go back really quickly to what you were saying just before about a parent who might come to you and say, don't use that book because it's blasphemy. That's mm -hmm. obviously a, a different dynamic from a district official coming in and saying something. Yeah. How did you respond? What What is your advice to people when- When that happens. You didn't say things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I listened and dialogued. This was a, <laughs> it was an Oscar Wilde book. And that parent was a born again Christian, Pentecostal, was just convinced. I can't remember the passage. I think it was in Dorian Gray. I cannot remember the passage, but he was convinced that his child reading that book was going to make him gay. That's what he kept saying to us. And so we listened. We brought him in. You know, we listened a lot. He dialogued with me. He dialogued with Carmen. He dialogued with the teacher. He went all the way up to the superintendent. And at the end of the day, it was a book that you know lots of people thought was important literature. So he didn't win. We gave him as much room as we could to present his point of view. Sometimes parents refuse to have their kids in a classroom. I remember early days we were teaching about AIDS and we had to give parents the opportunity to have their kids do an alternative assignment to not be in that class because it was just so they believed that this was, they, they had non-scientific principles about AIDS. And so sometimes you have to let parents do what they need to do. You know, I've had parents scream and yell at me about, we had a play that we were casting 
by race. We were using, we were not colorblind in auditions. We said any kid could audition, but it was a, it was the soldier, you know, it was a soldier story. And so white kids were only going to be cast in a couple of, I think one part. And the, some of the white parents went bananas. This is racist. This is this, this is that. And, you know, I had to say, there's lots of other plays we do that aren't specifically about black people. This one happens to be, and your kid can audition just to practice auditioning. But no, we're not going to go back on that. We are going to cast this way. So I, that's always the hardest as a school leader because parents are so all over the map. And you just have to, I think school leaders have to have interminable patience and a sense of humor. <laughs> you know, we had a parent that, oh God, she would come up screaming about everything. And one day Carmen was in a science class doing that egg drop experiment, you know, where the kids were dropping eggs out the window. And wouldn't you know it, that parent was coming up and an egg landed right on her. And she was, she made a beeline for Carmen saying, you know, you just don't want me to criticize. You don't want me. Carmen had to like find a way to leave the, the office. Otherwise she would have gotten, I don't know what. So parents are hard. Parents can be wonderful and they can be hard. But schools are messy places. And, and I don't think you go into school leadership if you don't like mess. I also don't think you go into school leadership. I used to say, people say, how have you done this for so long and with a good sense of humor? And I say, because I love putting on the boxing gloves. I love the fights. You kind of have to like that. You got to like the mess. You got to like all the extremes because it's all about balancing constituents, right? So clearly the kind of school that you've built and that you're describing requires enormous energy from everybody involved. Mm -hmm. How do you, as well, as a teacher first, but then as a school leader, how do you protect against faculty burnout? How do you make yeah. it people can do this over the long run? Right. So when I talked earlier about the schedule, that's where that came from. Because early days we were burning out because, you know, here it is in art school and you're at school in the evenings to see kids' performances Kids have to rehearse on the weekend, just like way too much. So we had to figure out a way that we could divide up the responsibilities. And, and we had to figure out a way that we could have a schedule where perhaps some teachers came in later because they stayed later. Some came earlier and left earlier. We has, you don't want teaching to be a place that you can't have a family. You know, you cannot you've got to have a life and your family is also really, really important if you know, you're a mom or a dad or a uncle or aunt, whatever you are. So we talked about that in one of our shared values at Boston Arts Academy, we had four, but passion with balance was a biggie because the kids really struggled with that as artists and we as faculty struggled with that. So, you know, we would do things to help faculty let go, very deliberate things. At the end of the year, we had a ritual where teachers would sort of let go of the sorrow or the pain that they were holding about kids that they felt that they hadn't met their needs. And, and we tried to hold that as administrators. And then for administrators, the team of us, we too had retreats 
to help us find some nourishment. And all of us, I think, it's interesting, and this was the same for me at Fenway as at the Arts Academy. We all had partners or spouses that really understood what we were doing and gave us a lot of support. Um, you've interviewed my spouse. I could never have done this without Steve. And uh, Carmen had a really strong partner. All of us did. It's very interesting. And just for our listeners, Steve is Steve Cohen. Yeah. And we interviewed a couple of weeks ago. Best teacher I know. Thank you so much, Dr. Linda Nathan of the Center for Artistry and Scholarship and the Perone Sizer Institute. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review, because this helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles, and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. And we work with consultants to offer customized SEL, social emotional learning programs, with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week. Thank you.